good evening, everybody. And welcome to the Thursday evening missions conference meeting for our 40th annual World Missions Conference. It's a delight to see all of you here, and it's a special privilege to see Dr. Sigdeo and his dear wife, Rosemary, with us, joining us. Welcome. And it's also good to have a, a, a comrade in the ministry. Uh, I think your name is Carolyn Curse Lake. Yes, Curse Lake. Good to have you as well. All right. Um, yes. Amen. I was so bad at that because I'm not really the one who's supposed to do that. I'm sorry. Uh, but the you could do a far better job than that, I'm sure. Forgive me. <laughs> All right. But nonetheless, I am rejoicing tonight because our God reigns. Amen. Despite all of the chaos, all of the ugly things we see in the world today, we know that our God reigns. And so we're going to sing this truth once again as we um, open our service and just rejoice in our great God who is sovereign over all. Amen. Would you please stand together with us as we sing together? How lovely. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, good news, announcing peace, proclaiming truth of happiness. Our God Our God reigns. 
please read together with me responsibly from First Chronicles chapter 16. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy in his dwelling place. He's here tonight, and we can rejoice in his presence. Amen. The splendor of tonight to our missions conference. I think we have a great audience for a Thursday night. What do you think, Brother Jim? For a Thursday night. Anyway, 
We want to give an official welcome to Brother Sadeo and his wife and a special guest. And um, just continue to enjoy the service. I think the Lord is doing great things in our services this week. And just continue to be open to him and to see what the Lord has in store for us. I um, just received a letter tonight. In fact, I got it last night, but um, it was just passed to me again a while ago. It's a wonderful letter from um, Chris Cartwright. That's Priscilla's son, and he's doing a wonderful work over there in the States. And um, I can't take the time to read it all right now, but God has done wondrous things in his life. And um, maybe later on you could ask for a copy and we could give you a copy. But it's amazing, because when I think of Chris Cartwright, I think of him as a little boy sitting there in the middle, and he was... He was quite, quite a, a guy. He was, he, it's like he couldn't keep still in church. You'd see him going out, he'd come back, and he just wouldn't sit during the service the whole time. And when I read this last night or this morning, I thought of what God had done in his life. There's hope for everybody. He's done wonderful things in Chris's life. So um, we have a lot to thank God for in Chris's life. And let's, let's pray for Chris as he continues to be led by the Lord and see what the Lord has in store for him. And I just want to put one more plug in for the Missionary Adoption Program. This is a letter I just received this morning from the Drakes. I adopted them back in, I think it was 2001 or something like that. And they've been in the States in furlough. Unfortunately, they weren't able to be with us this time. But I just got a wonderful letter of the work they're doing down there, down south of us. So um, just want to encourage you all to try and adopt Maybe one of the missionaries that's here with us this week, the Rallocks or whoever, one of the missionaries that's here with us, Edison, Eunice, or local missionaries or foreign missionaries, just pick one of them. Just pray and ask the Lord which one you should adopt and just pray for them, write them, just send them like a birthday card, anniversary card, just something to encourage them as they're out there in the field. So once again, welcome, and I'll turn it over to Brother Wendy for the opening prayer. Good evening. Please pause with me as we go before our Father. Oh, Father, what an endearing term. We pause to recognize how very special this is for us to know for certain that we have a relationship with you where we can certainly call you Father. Thank you for what it cost you for us, for us to have this relationship with you. We pause to recognize your faithfulness to us even when we were unfaithful to you. And so here we are, Lord, celebrating 40 years of missions and the involvement with missions in a direct way. We thank you for the founders, and we thank you for those who are even here to this day. And their commitment to you is expressed through this conference during this week. Lord, we thank you for what we have heard and what we have experienced during these past days. We thank you for uh, Dr. O'Neill and his sharing in his ministry, his passion. We thank you for having spoken through him to us. Now, Lord, it is our responsibility in an act of obedience to uh, move and act upon those impressions that you have made on our hearts. And here we are, Lord, coming towards the end of the second half of this week of special uh, celebration and information and inspiration. Lord, we ask that you will so govern and guide and direct every aspect of these services, these, these meetings, so that you might be honored in our lives and in our actions to come. We ask a blessing, especially on uh, Dr. Sigdeo and his, his wife and uh, his presentation these uh, few days remaining. And we ask for the blessing on uh, 
other missionaries who would have shared and will be sharing as well. We think of our brother Edison and Eunice as well, who will be sharing um, very shortly with us. These things, Father, we ask with thanksgiving, knowing that simply your will will be done, as we've been singing. You are indeed a great God. You are indeed sovereign. You are still in control, and we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. It is uh, my singular, and I like to say on your behalf, pluralistic pleasure uh, to welcome you to our Thursday evening, um, very special uh, missions conference uh, continuation. I wish also at this time to recognize uh, brother, uh, Dr. Rex Major, and his dear wife with us, and other members, Brother Lightburn as well, and other members from the other assemblies who are here with us this evening. Thank you for coming and sharing with us as well. Uh, <laughs> Pastor Lyle Bethel as well. He get a singular special applause. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you, my brother. We want to begin because we have a jam pack. Well, I'm going to introduce our next uh, our first highlight or spotlight on missions. And I, I think uh, Sister Eunice would have mentioned it already. One uh, homegrown, uh, right from the backyard, backyard farming. We formerly used to be called um, Sunlight Boat. We take the boat away. We still have the sun because the sun still shines. And so we'd like to welcome to the uh, platform Edison and his dear wife. We have a video first. And the lights will go out as soon as I snap my finger. But we have Edison and Eunice uh, Pinder who will be sharing with us uh, their ministry and what's happening at this time. And then later on, they will probably come and, and make some comments. And now for the snap. Thank you. As most of you know, we live in Cat Island where we work in the schools, do vacation Bible school, and help in the communities. Every week, we conduct assemblies in all of the schools with singing and Bible stories. We also teach arts and crafts to grade four through six. For the past four years, Bruce and Deb Hefner have come from Pennsylvania to do gospel magic and trumpet playing. Besides coming to Cat Island, we have taken him to Abaco, Andy Luthera, and he has stopped in Nassau at Global Village and Calvary Bible Church to minister. All of the children and adults as well enjoy their ministry. And of course, Vacation Bible School is a big part of our work. We have decreased our original schedule of 15 years ago of eight weeks of VBS to three to four weeks in the summer. Last summer, a group of teens came from Calvary to do VBS and work projects. The VBS group stayed with us and helped with teaching the lessons, recreation, and arts and crafts, along with some of the local teens we use. We met up with the work team led by Michelo and his wife for some of our meals. After a few days, the long, 30-mile ride home put some of our group to sleep. Unfortunately, no extra naps for Eddie and me. Each evening, we had great devotions and discussions with them. Some days, instead of swimming at the beach across the street from the house we rented, they just had to catch up on their sleep. Or maybe they were meditating on their devotions for the evening. One thing for sure, doing VBS with no air conditioning in the summer heat makes anyone tired. Michelo told us the work team did a great job cleaning up yards for some of the elderly people we help. Some of the teens want to come back again this summer. One afternoon they helped decorate a path with balloons for our new German neighbor who turned 90 years old. 
Then it was time to pack up and head back to Nassau. Our granddaughter Henri came with the group and stayed an extra two weeks. She helped us distribute clothes to some of the people we help. She then went with us to Long Island along with our friends Roy and Lucille on their boat. They helped us with a week of VBS there. Roy and Lucille Bowers are an answer to our prayers of wanting a good Christian couple to fellowship with. They live permanently in Cat Island, just a few blocks from the house we are purchasing in Greenwood, which is on the southernmost part of the island. We were invited to Long Island by Father Burton and his wife. He used to be the Anglican priest in Cat Island before being transferred to Long Island. August brought Hurricane Irene, one of the most destructive hurricanes to hit Cat Island in years. The house we rented only had shingles blown off, but with no electricity for three weeks, we lost everything in our fridge and freezer. Many houses were devastated. There are still homes that have blue plastic tarps on their roofs waiting to be repaired. NEMA and Habitat for Humanity were a real blessing and a help to the people in Cat Island. It took months of work repairing roofs, power lines, and phone lines. The Anglican Church, where we conduct VBS each summer, was a mess. School roofs and ceilings weren't fixed until December, and many of the classrooms were full of mold, and the roads weren't repaired until January. We have helped as many people as we could with donated clothing from Nassau, Abaco, and Spanish Wells. Our front porch was the separation and distribution center. We also bought food for those that lost so much. Our blind friend, Mr. Jolly, had some work done by his son, who lives in Nassau, with materials that NEMA provided. He attached it to his old house that was falling down, so now we have to pull it down and rebuild it with money we have collected for this project. Crabs are huge in Cat Island, and our friend Bumpy caught this one. Bumpy got very sick in November, and we helped him get to Nassau to the hospital. When released, he stayed a week at Global Village apartment being fed by our two daughters. Matthew, our son-in-law, checked on him every day, presenting the gospel and praying with him before he came back to Cat Island. Sadly, Bumpy died in mid-January. We pray we will see him in heaven. Through working with children and helping people in times of need, we have many, many opportunities to show and tell people of Jesus' love and their real need of a personal relationship with him. Please continue to pray for us and our many friends in Cat Island. Good night. Good night. <laughs> if you're a cat island. Okay, and I get to start. Um, as you can see, our presentation told a little bit about what happened in the last few months in Cat Island. Um, we told the people, I think it was just before Christmas, that we were moving, and they were all very, very upset. But then we said, no, 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 we're just moving to the other end of the island. And um, so now they are sure that we have become Cat Islanders and we are purchasing a house in Greenwood. Um, God gave us this house. Uh, it wasn't free, but we offered them a third of what the listed price was. And they said, no, the land was worth more. And it is. And um, we got a call back a month later that they accepted the offer. And. Um, then after the hurricane, everything hadn't gone through, 
and we had a little bit of damage to the roof, so we offered them a lower price, and the day later, they said, okay. <laughs> These people were German people, and they, are not, they never came back. Uh, they've been gone two years. So when we moved in about three, four weeks ago, we had to move all of their stuff, pack it all up, and we um, donated it. The nurses were doing a jumble sale, and we gave away everything that we could for the um, people in Cat Island. Um, I want to tell you something about my neighbors because they're a new mission field for us. Um, we mentioned the 90-year-old lady. She was a nurse in the Nazi army. Then behind with us, Hitler. with Hitler's, Hitler's army. Um, behind us, we have two um, ladies that are building a house out of sandbags. One is one of the local nurses, she's an American, whose father was an Anglican priest. But now, she says, I've become Jewish. And her friend is an outright tells us, we, I'm an atheist, don't even talk to me about God, I don't want to hear anything. So right there, we've got the two Bahamian missionaries, and we've got the Nazi nurse, and we've got the Jewish lady and the atheist. And uh, so please pray for us with our new neighbors. Um, Oh, and then we still have friends. I think from years before, you might remember, we have two teachers that we are very friendly with and have been able to witness to them. And um, that's Mr. and Mrs. Uh, what's his name? His name is Jamal Mohammed Ishmael. So what do you think? They are Muslim. So that is, we have a real mission field besides working in the schools. The hurricane did a lot of damage to Cat Island. Let you saw some of the pictures there. They had a lot of roof damage, but a lot of the damage was inside from water damage, from the roofs leaking and so forth. And as you saw there, believe it or not, Mr. Jolly's house stood the hurricane. He lost his shingles. They had to put a um, blue tarp on it, but it survived. Nima started to build him a house. You know, just put the house up the sides and the roof on. But the sun came down, and the sun took over the construction. Then Nima pulled back. And what happened there was is that he was going to attach the new building to the old building. And they wouldn't work. Just, you know, wouldn't stand. We had somebody from Man of War down there, Pastor Ian, another guy looked at it. He says, we wouldn't even touch it. Now, because they got to knock everything down and start off, well, we have somebody coming the end of this month from Florida, a pastor and a construction guy, and hopefully that they're going to take on the task to build Mr. Jolly's house because we have the basic funds that we need to finish this house and to build it for him. And Mitchell Lowe's, hopefully when he comes down this summer with his work team, we still have the 10 gallons of paint that they sent down last year for them to paint the house. So we'll still have that paint there for him for them to paint the house and to get things cleaned up. In the hurricane relief, we did not get involved with the construction aspect of it. Because NEMA and you, um, Habitat for Humanity, they were down there. They did an excellent job. Anybody that we had in our mind to fix a house, they did it. They put the roofs on and they did whatever they had to do. But we in turn gave out groceries, we gave out a lot of clothing to the people, and a lot of time they run out of cooking gas, we see them, and we have to buy um, the cooking gas for that. Now, we don't just give to any and everyone. If you could afford to buy your clothes or got 
you know, something, um, income or something like that, we pull back. We give it only to people out of needs, and we get the names from the teachers and from the nurses down there in Cat Island. So it isn't somebody coming on our front porch for freebie. They don't get it. We have to know that they are in need. Okay, I get to finish up. Uh, they have a Methodist church down there, and we have um, Lillian Poitier, one of Sydney's Poitier's relatives. She's the pastor down there, and uh, she's also the guidance counselor in the school. And probably every six weeks, she calls Edison and asks if he will speak there. So it, get, it gives us a chance to meet the people down at that end and work with them as well. Now, this May, we will be going to Spanish Wells to the Methodist Church up there uh, during the GLAD exams. We can't go into the schools when they're doing the exams. So we're going to be going to Spanish Wells, which is good because all three of those churches help us in our work, either a monthly or they'll just give us maybe once or twice a year a gift. But uh, we can give them a report on what's happening down in Cat Island. Um, we've been in Cat Island six years this month, and we worked with every single child that's in school because the ones that are now in 12th grade were in 5th or 6th grade when we came, so we know every child. Now, as a result, all of the parents and Grammys and aunts and uncles know the Pinders. There are only two Pinders on the island. One works uh, G &G. for G&G &G Shipping, and he's a Jehovah's Witness and then us, so they know who the Pinders are. And it's given us a great opportunity to be a witness to the families because we are working with their children that they love. Um, we want to thank all of you that have either sent clothes down or supported us, give money to the church. We really, really appreciate it. And we wish more of you had come down and see what we're doing. We'll, we'll put you to work. <laughs> We would enjoy it. Um, we thank you so much for supporting us, especially in prayer, because it's prayer that keeps us on the field. Um, we will be working on this house that God has given us. There, We need to replace one of the, the garage roof. And um, we would ask you to be in prayer to help us to get a few extra funds so that we can get that done. And... Uh, we are now planning on retiring there, so we'll just still be coming back to see grandkids and to visit you guys. But we love you, and we just thank you for all that you do for us. Oh, we have many of you are already on our, our mailing list, and I'll be giving out the newsletters tomorrow night and Sunday. But if you aren't and you'd like one of our newsletters, we brought some extra ones back there. If you want to be on our mailing list, just let us know. Thanks. Any questions? Thank you very much. Do you have any questions for the Pinders, one of two Pinders in Cat Island? Any questions? Oh, come on. At least one question. That means you explained it very simple and good. Or you confused everybody. Right. Yeah. yeah, it could be that, too. Right. Very good. No one else. Well, I, I, Brother David. to be on our board. We have a board of directors, and uh, so he should really know just about everything. <laughs> well, I know, but they need to know. Oh, okay. Oh, good. What is your biggest need, Eddie, outside of financial support? What can we do as a church to help you guys? 
pray. Well, we do that too. Um, the the, um, the clothing. I continue. I mean, sending down people there. The people there. It's not like Abaco. It's not like Eleuthera. It's like stepping back in time about 30 years there. If I mean, uh, Charlie, can you atta attest to that? It's stepping back in time. Uh, a lot of people still do not have electricity or running water or indoor bathrooms. And you know, you think, oh, that's unheard of. But it's just very common there. I mean, I feel bad. I have a, uh, the house we got has one bathroom. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I really need two. You know, some don't have any inside, so I should be thankful. But one of the other things that we would like to see is we don't put a budget for any special things. We'd like to see probably uh, 150 to $200 coming in extra a month to buy groceries for the people down there that needs it. That's what we would like to see. You know, our support picked up, say, $150, $200 a month so that we go out every other week and buy these people that need these groceries. That's what we'd like to see. Question here. Wait, wait for the mic, Sister Brother <laughs> Brother Yunus. Um, <laughs> sorry, changing agenda. Sorry. I just wanted to find out, when you return home this time, are you going in a boat? Because if there are some things that can be collected before you leave, no? You're flying no. back. No, we send things on the boat. We put pallet. We have two. I have to say, we have two of the best son-in-laws. Two of our no. best son-in-laws. Three. three. Yeah. Two of them. <laughs> They make sure whatever we need is put on the boat. Okay, because there are some things that can be organized now that I know your son-in-laws are so good, I'll try and give them some work. Yeah. They are wonderful. Yeah, what they do, they accumulate it in the warehouse, and then when they get you know, enough, then they ship it down to us when the boats are coming. We don't have a boat on every week. It's irregular now, very regular there. But the people, I must admit, they really do appreciate the clothes. You just see our ports in the afternoons. Full of people scrummaging through. I said, no, these are the ladies size large. These are the small. And I said, you can't have the whole box. <laughs> oh, the schools, yes. They lost a lot of books in the hurricane. Yeah, they don't. The Templeton Foundation, they sent them down some books. We went to one of the schools um, last week, and they um, just got some books from the Templeton Foundation. Yeah. But we still take books. And we put a library in each school in Cat Island, not the high school, but all the primary schools, with the books that we have. And they don't have to be children's books. I have teachers every week. Ms. Pinder, do you have another Christian book? So I give them um, Christian novels. Those ladies love to read it. So any kind of books. One more. Eddie and Eunice, years ago, you know, you all were collecting Christmas cards and anniversary cards and whatever. No, you don't no use cards those yet. anymore. No, we still have okay. cards in our garage. Okay, fine. Okay. We got so many that first year, we, we must have had 10 boxes. I mean, you can only make so many crafts out of, box, out of Christmas cards. Okay, <laughs> let me explain the situation of the house. The house is on one lot. There's a garage and a work shed on another lot. And then we have another lot. There's three lots of land. And we have to replace the roof on the garage, number one, so we can have storage space there. So that's what you want to, with, with the, what's the garage doing there, that's on a separate lot, you know, there. So we have three lots of land that came with the, um, with the deal. And a, and a car that we're going to give away. 20-year-old car, <laughs> if I get it running. Thank you. Uh, there's another question, and this will probably be the last one. And... Uh, with the mic. 
service agency there that is helping the people? Yes, uh, yes. they're very involved with the people, yes, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Okay. All yeah. Very good, thank you. I'm going to ask our Brother Randy Pierce to, to just pray for those needs that were expressed. We certainly appreciate the fact that at least the boat is, is regular. It's good to help people who are regular as well. Um, Brother Randy, uh, would you please uh, pray for the pindus and the needs that were expressed? Father, we give you thanks and praise for Eddie and Eunice who have committed their lives to, for the past six years to serving the people of Cat Island who are in dire need. Uh, we thank you, Father, for their faithfulness, and we thank you, Father, for the open doors that you have provided for them in the many areas that they have experienced thus far. We pray, Father, for the needs that they have at this time, the funds that are needed to make the repairs on the new property, and uh, for the additional resources that are needed, uh, clothing, uh, the additional uh, $100 to $200 a month for food for the persons on the island. We pray, O oh God, that out of your vast storehouse of reservoir of resources that you will provide for them, as you have done over the past years. So we commit them to you, Lord, and we thank you, Father, for their faithfulness and uh, for the fruit of their labor. Uh, they've mentioned that there are many young people who have uh, been there and uh, experienced their ministry from the earlier grades and are now in the, in the, in the older set. And uh, we pray, Father, for that fruit that has uh, been brought forth, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would also give them the opportunity to reach those around them, uh, their neighbors, especially the one who claims to be an atheist. Uh, we know, Lord, that you can do exceedingly abundantly above, and it would be a tremendous joy uh, for us to hear of the news that even the atheists got saved. And so, Lord, we commit them to you, and we ask, O oh, Father, that you would give them the open doors uh, that is necessary uh, for you to be glorified through the salvation of souls. We thank you for them, and we commit them to you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you very, thank you very much. And now we're going to have a special music rendition by the Relics. We'll start with uh, in the Ukrainian language, so you will know what we are singing about. Then we will continue in, in Spanish, and we will finish in English. So I hope you will understand the words. If you know the words in English, you can sing with us. <laughs> Jesus, 
Alex, who are serving in Argentina with the world's, that is a radio ministry. We should thank you very much for your ministry there. And now, as you see on the screen, we have the Barnabas Fund closely related and uh, intimately involved, of course, with Dr. Xedeo. And But we do have 
with him this evening, a special guest who will come and speak to us and probably with a special presentation as well. So we'd like to invite her at this time. Um, I know it's a lake, a curse lake, and do not cuss lake, it's curse lake. Would you please welcome Miss Curse Lake to share with us and maybe a special presentation with the Barnabas Fund. Can I use this one? Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> right. I hope you can all hear because I can now see the pictures. Would it be good to uh, dim the lights? Is that okay? Or can you see it? No. All right. Well, it's uh, really a joy to be here and to be able to share with you because I know that so many of you have been helping through your prayers and your gifts um, to make possible the work that I'm just going to show you. But first of all, why does the Barnabas Fund exist? Well, we are commanded in God's word to do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers, our own brothers and sisters, and there are many wonderful organizations who are following the first half of that command, doing good to all, but not so many are focusing on the family of believers. And that's what we believe we at Barnabas Fund are called to do. And within that family, we feel that our special calling is to help those who suffer because they bear the name of Christ. And this is a very great need. You'll see the um, research there just from last year shows that Christians are the most harassed faith group in the world. And if you count up the figures, one in ten of our brothers and sisters is living in a context of pressure or persecution where they suffer just because they love the Lord. Now, how do we help? Many different ways. And this diagram just shows some of the main ways but we will do anything which helps suffering Christians or strengthens the church and the mission of the church in places of persecution. Our method is very simple. We're just a channel for gifts from Christians, through Christians. That's first of all Barnabas Fund, and then it's churches and local Christian organizations on the ground in the countries to Christians who receive the help at the end of that little chain. Um, we send money, as I said. We don't send people. We fund projects that Christians in those countries have started. They've had the vision and they're running. All we do is provide part of the finance and encourage people all around the world to pray. And where do we do it? Well, since Barnabas Fund started... We've helped in over 80 different countries, and I'm showing you here the main regions of the world where we work. And who do we help? Here's a list of some of the people that we help, and I'm going to introduce you to these brothers and sisters in the next few slides. Let's start with children, because they are the most vulnerable group of all. And, you know, it's often children who are at the front line of persecution. 
Maybe they have to go day by day to school in a very hostile environment. They may be the only Christian child there. They may be even marked down in their exams and their work because of being a Christian, let alone the hostility, the mockery, even the violence that they may face. If you read our material, you'll know there was a schoolboy in Egypt who was actually killed, (coughs) killed by his classmates just a few months ago. So a priority for us is helping Christian children to get an education in a loving, caring, Christian environment. And this is one of the newest of 41 schools that we're supporting here in Bangladesh. This one in Bethlehem is one that we've been supporting for many, many years. And it's a really exciting and wonderful and heartwarming project to visit. Here's an example from Egypt. Now, I wonder if you've heard of the garbage cities that surround Cairo, the capital of Egypt. These are like just enormous um, tips where um, they bring the household trash. And communities of Christians are living there. They sort it out with their bare hands. And they make a little money um, by selling some of the products. And you can imagine that living in that kind of environment is very unhealthy. So a lot of the children have chronic sicknesses or are disabled. And this school, just opened a few months ago um, that we built, is providing an education for them and also the specialist facilities needed to care for their um, physical needs. We also help a lot of Christian orphans For example, in Burma, where Christians are very badly persecuted. And in this particular orphanage that we support, many of these children have lost their parents because of persecution. Their parents have been killed because of persecution. And here the children are waving when uh, some food was delivered to them not so long ago. Here are some other Christian children that we're feeding. Now, they live in a refugee camp in northeast Kenya, which is mainly Muslim, but there is a small number of Christians living there, just a few hundred families in a huge, huge camp. And as the aid is distributed in this camp, sad to say, the Christians don't always get as much as the Muslim majority. And that may seem hard to believe, but that's what often happens in natural disaster situations where Christians are discriminated against and despised. So we're helping those Christian families there. And in particular, we're helping the under fives. And there you can see them queuing up with their cups ready to receive their special food supplement. Children don't only need food for their bodies, they also need nourishment spiritually. And here's a project which um, we support with a Christian magazine in three different languages including Kyrgyz, and this really encourages and builds up the children in their faith in very difficult situations. Now, another very vulnerable group are the elderly. And many of the Christians that we help are older brothers and sisters. This lady here in Pakistan, we've been helping to feed her ever since the floods in Pakistan two years ago. And she's just one of many older folk and younger ones that we're helping to feed there till they can get their lives sorted out again. We also fund a number of residential care homes in uh, several different countries around the world. 
And here are two in Lebanon. The one on the left is up and running already, but it needs quite a lot of renovation work on it. And on the right, there's a brand new one being built. Uh, we took that photo just last month when we were visiting. The Bible has a lot to say about helping widows, doesn't it? Widows are not necessarily elderly. Many of the ones that we help are young mothers with several young children to care for. And in the societies where they live, it's extremely difficult for a woman who does not have a husband or a close male relative. But here in, in Bangladesh, for example, when we were giving out relief after the flood, um, there were a number of Christian widows helped. And one of them here, she was so grateful that she was crying and crying with happiness when she received her food parcel. We're also helping widows in Zimbabwe, uh, a country of great suffering in many different ways. And here in Kenya, we're enabling the widows to support themselves. We provided funds for this maize mill, and now they can uh, be self-sufficient selling the um, maize that they grind in their mill. Here, this is Rose, a widow in Burundi. We gave her some bean seeds, and this photo shows her standing proudly in front of her crop of beans that she has grown, no longer dependent on outside help. Of course, we also help whole families. And very often, it is through providing food for very poor and needy families. Egypt has a lot of very, very poor Christians. And we've been helping for many years feeding through the local churches. But since the Arab Spring, things have got much worse for Christians there. They're facing greater violence and hostility and their greater needs from the general crisis. So this photo is from a new program that we've had to start since the Arab Spring because of the greater needs of the Christians. You can see they're holding their food parcel there, the brother on the right. Now, just going back to northeast Kenya and the famine there, this mother um, gave a, a wonderful testimony of how much it meant to her. She said that the food we, we gave had actually saved her children and ensured that they were going to survive the drought. She says, my worry about what my family will eat tomorrow is now gone, and I feel relaxed. Here's a family where it's the father who bears the uh, brunt of the worry and care for his family. I'm sorry, the picture's not very good quality, but I wanted to share with you his words and show you his picture. His name is Bashir. And he said, the help we're getting from Barnabas is like ointment on our wounds. Now, this feeding program in Pakistan really changes lives. All we do is give 50% of their food needs each month. But that makes such a difference. The first thing that most families do is they stop sending their children out to work when they get this food, and they start sending their children to school instead. And this is wonderful because this gives hope for the future. Because though many of the parents are illiterate, if their children can go to school and learn to read and write, they should, Lord willing, get jobs a little bit better than the jobs their parents had. So they should be able to support their children without needing extra food parcels. Now, what is really wonderful with Bashir is that his son has not only gone to school, but he's also now at college. And that is such an unusual thing 
for Pakistani Christians who, who start from a position of such poverty and need. And the other thing with Bashir is that his wife is very sick. And many of these Christians, when they get sick, they just can't pay for any medical help. They just have to endure their illness. But Bashir's wife is able to get um, medical care now because Bashir can save the money because of the food parcels. The situation in Iraq is very different because the Christians there um, were not a traditionally poor and illiterate community at all. They were very different from Egypt and Pakistan. They were well educated and they would have jobs like uh, doctors, dentists, teachers and university lecturers. So why should Christians like this need food parcels? What happened was when Saddam Hussein was overthrown, do you remember there was such chaos and lawlessness unleashed in Iraq? Anybody could do anything they wanted because nobody was there to stop them. And what some of the extremists wanted was to, as they would call it, cleanse their country of any Christian presence. And the method was simple. They were going to intimidate and scare the Christians into leaving. So there were threats, there were murders, kidnappings, bombings of churches. Not surprisingly, hundreds of thousands of Christians left their homeland, and many of them settled in Syria, which has welcomed them in. But they now had no home, they had no job. And very soon, they would, they'd moved to uh, a position of destitution. They turned to the churches for help, and the churches turned to Barnabas. We provided the funds, and they provided the food parcels. Armenian Christians have really, really suffered for the Lord over many, many years. Now, they do have their own homeland, Armenia now, but it's terribly poor. Look at that house on the right, and then consider that in winter, the temperatures in Armenia often fall to minus 20 degrees Celsius. Now, how can you live in a house like that, in a temperature like that? We're just trying to help them to keep warm. We're giving them winter fuel. Now, most of them, it's wood to burn, and sometimes it's electricity, and then we pay their bills. But it's even better when we can help families to become self-sufficient, to move from poverty into being able to support themselves. And these ladies are walking home with bags of seeds on their head that they have been given through one of our, the programs we support, and they will plant those seeds and grow food for their families. That's just one of many self-sufficiency programs that we support. Now, we often help also a whole congregation or, or church. For example, in Sri Lanka, where there was a terrible civil war for many years, which finally finished in 2009. Now, the Christians were not involved in the civil war, but they lived in the place where all the fighting was. Many homes were destroyed, which were helping to rebuild, and also about a hundred churches. And those Christians are too poor to rebuild their own church buildings. So we're trying to help them. We've done seven so far, and you can see two of them there. And we've got ten partly built, and one of those is on the right. So that's 17, and we've got 83 to go. We also help 
whole communities of Christians, uh, where they often will be a Christian village in a mainly Muslim majority area, for example. And this is a water pump, which is shared by a community of Christians in Bangladesh. And they are all converts from Islam. That means they suffer a lot of discrimination from the Muslim villagers. And if they didn't have this water supply, they wouldn't have any access to the water. And here is a very interesting situation. There was a village in Indonesia called Harali, and it was attacked about four or five years ago by Muslims, and they did an awful lot of damage to the houses, and I think all the three church buildings were damaged to different extents. So we helped with rebuilding. You can see some of the new houses there. On the right, that is um, a communal um, washroom, uh, because they don't have them in their own homes. It's very simple lifestyle. And at the bottom, that's one of our churches being rebuilt. So always going well until they got a challenge about did they legally own the land that these buildings were on. Well, they had to go to court and prove it. And it has taken all this time and quite a lot of legal fees, which Barnabas Fund has covered, but finally, three weeks ago, came the good news. Yes, they've won the case. They've proved their ownership. Now they have their buildings and they have their land. A real priority for us is Christians who've suffered violence or injustice because of their Christian faith. And I expect many of you um, are praying for our sister, Asya Bibi, who's in prison in Pakistan right now, accused of what they call blasphemy. Um, they're saying that she criticized Muhammad. Uh, it, it's a trumped-up charge, like they all are with Christians, but she has been given a death sentence, and she's there in prison. Now, her family had to go into hiding because zealous Muslims believe that they are pleasing God if they kill anyone accused of blasphemy, and if they kill their nearest and dearest as well. So her husband can't work anymore because he has to hide. So we're helping them with monthly food and also a special extra grant for winter to buy clothes and blankets and things to keep warm. This is a very, very brave Christian girl, and I'd like to tell you her story. She's 16. She is the daughter of a pastor, a pastor who's been suffering harassment from the police for a long time. Now, one day, the police turned up at the family home, and her father and her brother were out. It was just Ruth and her mother in. And Ruth answered the door, and there were the police asking for her father. And she said, he's not here. And then the police tried to open the door of their car, which was parked nearby. Now, Ruth was afraid that what they planned to do was plant drugs in the car, and then later discover them, and then arrest her father, because that is a, a regular thing that the police do to pastors in this part of the world. So she tried to stop them, and they did not like that. And they took that young girl, and they beat her. They beat her against the car, and they beat her and hit her with other things until they'd beaten her unconscious. Her family took her to hospital, and the hospital began to treat her. And they asked, how on earth did this girl get such severe injuries? And when her family explained that the police had done it to her, the hospital said, take her away. We're not going to treat her. 
So they took her to the capital, Tashkent, to a hospital there, but they also refused to treat her. And finally, they had to take her to Russia. There was nowhere in their own country that they could find treatment for her. So they've got her some medical care in Russia, but of course this was expensive, and we have helped to cover it. But this girl is, is very severely damaged, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Um, you can see she's sitting in a wheelchair in this picture. Now, the latest news I have is that she is starting to learn to walk again. But her left arm is really non-functional. Um, she's been having frequent blackouts, and she is so frightened that even, even if both her parents are in the room, she still can't bear to have the light switched off. She can't be in the dark at all now. So please pray for Ruth and ask that God would heal this brave, brave sister of ours. You might know about the um, huge, uh, in, uh, large-scale incident of anti-Christian violence that occurred in Orissa State in India in 2007 and 2008. It was Hindu extremists attacking churches and Christian homes and killing a number of Christians. And about 60,000 Christians were made homeless in that incident. Now, over the years, some of them have found places to settle, but there's still about 10,000, say that would be 2,000 families, who still don't have a proper place to live. And we're starting to help rebuild. We've done 577 houses so far. And here's a couple of examples of people we've helped. Now, on the left, you can see the kind of... You can see where he is, has been living. It looks as if it's made of newspaper, doesn't it? I don't know exactly what it's built of, but it's certainly uh, not very weatherproof. On the right is the new house, the new brick house being built. And here's another family standing in the left in front of their old house and on the right in front of their new house. Um, so it's really encouraging that we've been able to help them get new houses. These houses, they only cost about $1,100 each. It's just one simple brick room, quite a small room. So that's, that's for them, is the house that they need and want. Top of the list of Christians who suffer for their faith must be converts from other religions because for them it's normal to be persecuted when they make a decision to follow Christ. It's unusual not to suffer. Here is a pastor who used to be a Muslim sheikh and then he became a Christian and he's now quite a senior pastor in Uganda. He's also been speaking out to warn about the gradual Islamization of his country, particularly in legal matters. And it was probably because of this that he was attacked on Christmas Eve and acid was thrown at his face. He was very badly burnt, in particular one eye. And, and his prayer request to us about 10 days ago was that the doctors who are treating him want to remove the eye altogether. But he said he's beginning to see a little bit of light in that eye. And he's, he's really asking, let the doctors know the right thing to do, or can we find doctors who could save that eye for him? So pray for him as well. In the same country, 
um, but not, not nearly such desperate suffering, thankfully. This group of women, all converts from Islam, they're learning skills that they can support themselves with. Now, why do converts need that? Because very often they're thrown out of their jobs when they become Christians. So they need to have some skills that they can be self-employed and have their own businesses. Here is a group of Afghan converts and their children. They're not in Afghanistan. They've had to flee. Christians in Afghanistan, as converts from Islam, are very likely to be killed. It could be the Taliban who kills them. It could be the Afghan government who executes them according to their law. But either way, it's very, very dangerous to be an Afghan Christian in Afghanistan. So we're helping to care for this group with food and rent and other practical needs. And converts, like all Christians, need building up in the faith. So here is just one example of a recent literature project for Turkish converts from Islam. Now, we support uh, a lot of literature projects, although I haven't time in this presentation to speak much about them. But in the last two years, we provided nearly one and a half million pieces of literature, Bible, scriptures, and other things for Christians in situations of pressure and persecution. And the final group of people that I'd like to introduce you to are full-time Christian workers serving the Lord in situations of great hardship and hostility and danger amongst their own people group or in their own country. Uh, for example, a group of pastors in Sierra Leone, um, this couple in Central Asia evangelizing amongst Muslims there. Um, in Chad, there's a couple there on the left and an Ethiopian brother on the right praying, I think, with two new converts. They're all working amongst Muslims in difficult and harsh situations. And it's our privilege to contribute a proportion of their support. But those in um, full-time ministry just don't only need support. They also need training, resourcing and equipping. So a high priority for us is leadership training. Now, it could be just a three-day training course, like this one in Tajikistan. Just three days, but what a difference it made. If you read the um, words there of Salman, he had, he's only been a Christian for two years. Before that, he was a Muslim, and his wife was converted even more recently. But already, they're in ministry, um, but they had had almost no training. And so he found that three-day course just fantastic for equipping him and answering his own questions about the Bible to help him as he shares the gospel. So we, we support over 10,000 Christians to be trained in the last two years. It could be a three-day course like this. It could be full-time Bible college. It could be anything in between, distance learning, all kinds of things. We believe that um, strong leaders will strengthen the church. Now, just to set all these little single examples in context, last year we supported 421 projects in 66 different countries. We sponsored 7,408 Christian children in 41 different Christian schools. We've also been helping in North Korea, which I think is the worst place in the whole world to be a Christian. We've helped to feed 93,000 Christians in 10 different countries. 
and we've supported 481 Christian workers in 33 countries. We've done a lot in Sudan and South Sudan, where Christians are in great need. And we've, as I just said, we've trained 10,011 Christians in 26 different countries. Um, Sorry that this is in pounds, but just to translate it into dollars, it's over a million dollars to help Christian victims of violence last year. And say a quarter of a million dollars to help Iranian Christians, both in Iran, where they're suffering hugely. You might have got our press release on that today, if you get our emails, and around the world. And 1,480,834 Bible scriptures and other pieces of Christian literature in 14 languages over the last two years. But none of this is possible except by the grace of God and through the gifts and prayers of his people. And that's all of you here, I'm sure. So thank you very, very much for the part that you have played in making these things possible. Thank you very much. Caroline Kerslake for a very comprehensive uh, presentation on the involvement of the Barnabas Fund. So I won't even ask no question. That was so clear and vivid. Thank you very kindly for, for sharing. I'm going to ask, though, at this time, especially for the prayer request that was mentioned, I'm going to ask Pastor Lyle, would you please just pray for the Barnabas Fund and um, uh, Ruth that was mentioned there and Pastor Omar? Um, particular emphasis for those two individuals. Thank you. Father, we are so incredibly grateful that you have put this vision to help the persecuted church in the hearts of Brother Patrick and Rosemary and Carolyn and the whole Barnabas Fund team. Uh, Lord, how they are able to find the various hurting communities and ensure that we who may know or not know first we find out by way of the magazines and then lord we can actually help out in tangible ways in in prayer and also in the the giving we thank you lord that they have been that conduit to ensure that believers crushed and hurting around the world crying out for help from you we have been, by means of your grace and the ministry of the Barnabas Fund, been the means of that answered prayer. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, our hearts are broken for Ruth and the trauma that she is continuing to relive as perhaps in her mind she remembers that severe beating. Oh, God, we, we ask that you would heal everything that has been broken. Uh, Lord, most especially her spirit that has been... Uh, um, buffeted about her her soul that has been wounded by the uh, awful attack on her person lord bring healing body soul and spirit uh, take away the terror that dominates her life and may you visit with her tap tabernacle with her and uh, heal all that has been broken that she would live a life of faith no longer crippled uh, in her mind by that overwhelming fear Remember Pastor Omar, Lord, uh, with the cowardly attack, acid thrown in his face, his eye all but ruined. Oh, God, touch, touch that eye. Touch, Lord, his, his uh, face that is beginning uh, 
the, the work of healing. Lord, we're seeing doctors do a great work with stem cells, but you are the author of the stem cells. We pray, Lord, that, that, that you would bring healing uh, to these bodies. And uh, we pray not just for Omar and Ruth, but for others whose names we don't know who are in the similar condition, who have been beaten, battered, bruised, acid, and other uh, things thrown on them. Lord, bring healing. But, Lord, for the overwhelming work that uh, the Barnabas Fund has to see and hear about, please, Lord, by your grace, give them strength to continue. Uh, protect them as they move about. May your angels constantly guard and keep them. We know that they have made many enemies around the world. We pray that you would frustrate every plan of the enemy to bring them down. And you would, Lord, always give them a sense of your presence, guiding and keeping them from the devil's onslaught and trying to create fear and perhaps a giving up. Uh, we commit and command them to you and pray, Lord, that you would sustain them in every way, in every thing. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very kindly. I'm going to ask you, you've all been seated for a while. If I was in another place, but this sounds good anyhow. All rise, please. Certainly want to, um, once again, thank you. And as we continue to to be mindful and to pray for our Christian brothers who are uh, suffering and being persecuted around the world. Uh, let us also remember Pastor Lee, who would have had a medical procedure um, yesterday and is recovering. We have him in chains because you know if otherwise he would have tried to be here. I've Sister Nancy to hide the car keys, and the doctor said that he's not to drive for a while. And so... We, I need your prayers for that, that we can successfully hide the keys and he doesn't have one of those remote control that will start his car automatically. All right. Um, good. Please, um, take a stretch and then have a seat again, please. Now stretch every part of your body and then have a seat. And we are delighted to welcome, to share in the second half of our conference, our dear brother, Patrick Xigdeo, um, who will come and minister to us. Um, and he is several, we've been praying for him as well. Um, because he would have had some medical issues, but God has been faithful. And would you please welcome him with a round of applause as he shares. Dr. Patrick. Rosemary, Caroline, and myself, I'm so pleased to be here. It's like coming home and meeting s and so many old friends. And uh, Pastor Lyle... Thank you so much for being here this evening. And I know some of the elders of the other assemblies, uh, Dr. Rex, uh, dear wife, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for supporting us. I'm, very, I'm not very good as a deputation speaker. Uh, I'm a preacher, old-fashioned preacher. So I felt in order to explain the work, I needed to bring Caroline. And I... <laughs> I think she has uh, done a far, far better job than I could ever have done in explaining what we do. And I hope that uh, that little PowerPoint has given you a, a snapshot of some, and it's only a small proportion, of the work that we do through your gifts. As you know, we get no funds from government. All our funds come from the Lord's people, from individuals, from churches like yourself, Grace that has supported us over so many years uh, here at Calvary, the assemb other assemblies, uh, and in various countries. So it's the Christian community responding to the needs of their Christian brothers and sisters. 
we little realized how much the Lord would work in the short time we've been in existence. When you consider just over about 13 or so years that the Barnabas Fund came into being, it has grown quite considerably. You know, each year, uh, I say this to myself, and uh, both Caroline and Rosemary knows it because I've said it before, I actually hope and pray that the Barnabas Fund ceases to exist. And the reason is a simple one, that persecution would go, the needs of our brothers and sisters would be met, and there'd be no purpose for our existence. Actually, each year, the situation deteriorates. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Lord has seen fit to bless us, so that we, the Lord's people, can be a means of blessing for his people. Over the next uh, three sessions, I want to address the subject of what is the Lord doing today? Particularly in the Middle East, but I want to touch, go broader, and to look at places like Nigeria. And then, tomorrow evening, Lord willing, to address the subject of what is the Lord saying to us? And then, Lord willing, on Sunday morning, what are God's purposes for us and for his church? And I would like to base what I have to say on the book of Habakkuk. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray now, Lord, that you will cause your Holy Spirit to enlighten your words to our hearts, that we might better understand your purpose for us in our day. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity? and cause me to see trouble. For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous. Therefore perverse judgments proceed. Habakkuk, the prophet. He describes himself as a prophet, but a rather peculiar prophet, because he has a burden. And this burden is like a great weight resting upon him, resting upon his shoulders. And it's a very peculiar burden, because it is a burden for the people of God, for those who belong to God the ancient children of Israel. His burden is for his people and what they are going through and even worse, for what they are about to go through, the awful tragedies that they are about to face. A prophet with a burden for his people. A prophet with a burden, you could say, for his persecuted people. 
A persecuted church demands a response by his people, by the Lord's people. The prophet, a prophet is one who does what? He has the ability to see into the future because God gives him the gifts of insight and discernment. And so that which is ahead becomes clear, becomes understandable. But the prophet actually is not just one who discerns the future and often sees that future, is one who now presents the facts of what he has seen to the people at large. He is forthright in his speaking and in his preaching as he addresses the contemporary situation. So this prophet with a burden is one who sees what is to come and now tells it as it is. But you know, this prophet has a rather peculiar name, Habakkuk. And the word Habakkuk is, is a very difficult word in the Hebrew to, to translate, but you could say that there are two parts to it. One is to embrace, the other is to wrestle. So you embrace and you wrestle. I don't know if you want a name like, like that. But actually it's a very good name. Because he is one who clings to God in love. And he is one who is willing to wrestle with God on behalf of his people. You see, he has this burden. He sees what is to come. He tells it out. But he cannot be moved deep within himself. For his is a heart full of love. And so he clings to this God even when all seems lost. And he wrestles with this God for his people. That God would still come and care for his people. And watch over them even in the darkest moments. When all seems lost and hopeless, that God must intervene. And so as he looks at this picture of persecution, so he complains to God. Yes, he has a concern. And that concern has to do with his burden that he is carrying. But then he complains. And this complaint is a very natural one. In verse 2, how long shall I cry and you do not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. This complaint is based on the simple fact that God did not seem to hear his cry. And that God seems unwilling to intervene to save. But there's an even more difficult aspect of this. Why on earth did God show him what was to come? Why did God show to him the trouble that was there? Why did God reveal to him the persecution of his people? Would it not have been much, much better if he did not know? 
if he went on doing his prophetic ministry without having to face this reality that was coming. And you could understand this complaint. Because this complaint comes from the very depths of his being. It seems to crush him. He cannot cope with what was coming to his people. He could not be the same person. Would he sleep at night? And so God reveals what was coming. And so as you read verse 5 onwards, you see the awful tragedy that was coming. The Chaldeans was coming. And they would wreak havoc on the children of Israel. One of the most brutal peoples on the face of this earth. They would seek to eradicate the people of God using warfare, using violence of the most appalling kind. And to have to live through that kind of violence. That's the context of this passage. It deals with persecution. It deals with pain. It deals with suffering. It deals with a prophet who is intimately involved with the life of his people. He has a concern for his nation. His heart is broken by what he sees, by what he now experiences. And this great weight rests upon him. And what is he to do? Last January 2011, the Barnabas Fund convened a meeting in Cyprus. We had about 70 plus Christian leaders from around the Middle East. I'd been feeling the previous year, back in 2010, that events in the Middle East were leading to a point where Christians would be in a position of crisis and would they know what to do. And so we convened this conference as a briefing military style. As some of you know, I've been of, for some years now involved as a British military advisor and I'd served both in Afghanistan and Iraq and my secular life I'm professor at the UK Defence Academy and I teach at NATO and I'm an analyst and so what I did was take what I do in the military in the briefing of uh, UK as well as US and NATO forces, senior officers, and apply to the Christian community. And so we had these 70 leaders present, and I did the first lecture by taking apart the Middle East, the second lecture looking at the position of the church, and the third lecture attempting to move into the future. And I well remember my final point that I made to this group of senior leadership. I said, supposing by the end of this week, or next week, your country was to collapse, what would you do? Would you be prepared for this? And I saw these leaders looking at me as if I'd gone crazy. Because it's not possible for a country just to implode, to collapse. You know, it doesn't work like that. 
But actually, being in the military, it does happen. And I wanted to explain the gravity of the situation before these leaders. Well, interesting enough, by the end of the week, Tunisia had fallen, shortly to be followed by Egypt. And one after another, the countries in the Middle East began to collapse. And the Christians found themselves reeling because they were not prepared for this. They did not know what was coming. And when it came, they found themselves totally overwhelmed. If you read our emails and my writings, you will see at the end of that January back into February, I wrote not of the Arab Spring. I did not believe and I do not believe in the Arab Spring. I spoke of what the Iranians termed it an Islamic awakening. And I wrote of an impending Christian autumn. Now I speak of a Christian winter. The so-called Arab Spring was a myth propagated by the media and by the West and by the Muslim countries for their own ends. Yes, it began by young people concerned with injustice, corruption on a massive scale, lack of governance, and all the problems that ails the Middle East. Starting with Tunisia, what was an economic issue of a young man who, having graduated from university, unable to find a job, takes a barrow into the streets filled with fruit and vegetables, only to find the security forces knocking it over, and he, in an act of desperation, douses himself with petrol and then applies the match. But he did not just set himself alight. He actually set the Middle East alight as well. And so the government of Ben Ali fell, only to be followed by Mubarak. And then Yemen went into civil war. Jordan found itself threatened. One after another, countries began to face difficulties. And now the problems of Syria. You see, very quickly, the Islamists gained control of the new revolutionary movements. And as they gained control, so they began to apply their own rigid bad brand of totalitarianism. If you take Libya, and Libya was at war, NATO got rid of Gaddafi, look at the flag of Libya. It now carries the Islamic stamp. The constitution just drawn up is an Islamic constitution based on the Quran and Islamic law. So NATO went to war to get rid of one dictator only to see now an Islamic dictatorship come into being. So Ben Ali, the dictator of Tunisia, departed. But who is in control? The Al-Nada party, which is an Islamist Muslim Brotherhood party led by Ghanoucci. So Mubarak has gone, but who has replaced him? The Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafist movements that control 70% of the parliament of Egypt. One after another, every country
that collapsed has seen the rise of militant fundamentalist Islam now in power. There is no such thing as an Arab Spring. There is rather an Islamist summer as political Islam gains ascendancy within the Muslim world. And it was the Iranians who actually got it right because they saw an Islamic awakening coming. So how did Christians began to respond? As these events began to unfold, a friend of mine, who is the General Secretary of the Bible Society of Egypt, issued his newsletter around about February, March of last year. And he spoke of persecution that was coming and called upon the Christian community to prepare for persecution. Others began to see similar things coming their way. And they began to question what will be the future of the church in the Middle East. The current view, which is held by many Christian leaders, is that the church in the Middle East may not survive unless there is a direct intervention by God, we may well be coming to the end of Christianity, which is set in orthodox forms within the Middle East. Uh, Caroline, Rosemary and I were in Lebanon just uh, last month. There was a major conference of Protestant leaders from across the Middle East, and I was invited to give the keynote address. And I sat after I'd finished my talk and listened carefully to what was being said. And there was this underlying sense of hopelessness, this sense of despair, this sense of coming violence for which there seems to be no response. Why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this? What has his people done to him that could warrant such violence? The concern of the prophet, his complaint. But you see, it leads to God's chastising justice. Because what God reveals to him is that God is coming in judgment to judge his people. And so some of the Christian leaders began to say to themselves, could it be that God's hand is against us? Could it be we have sinned, we have failed, and so judgment is right? I want you to think about this, because today I was struggling to know, how do I communicate to you what is there, which for me is normal, because at the end of this month, I go back to the Middle East and uh, get back into Syria. We're very fortunate. Uh, we have a multiple entry visa into Syria, so that's no, no problem. How do I communicate to you what is happening when it seems so far away from your reality, from what is there? Caroline spoke of Iraq, and I think Iraq is a good illustration. 
It is now recognized that the war in Iraq was an illegal war. Saddam Hussein was a rogue. I was going into Iraq back in the 1990s. I saw firsthand the brutality of the man. And I was one of those who longed for his removal. And for me, the worst sight I've ever seen was being there in Baghdad, being at a children's hospital with all the world's camera crews, and you saw children suffering with no drugs, no medicines, a mother holding a mask in front of a child's face for oxygen because there wasn't even rubber bands. There was only aspirins and paracetamol as painkillers. And everybody was blaming the UN, the international community. The senior medical officer got to me and whispered quietly, it's all for public consumption. Saddam has created that. He said below are the bodies of all the children who have died. And parents cannot even afford to bury their children. Now, I've seen things like that, and I, I loathe the man. But we went to war. For what? Not for terrorism. Because he didn't have terrorists. On trumped-up charges by Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair... But what were the consequences of that war? As Caroline said, the country imploded. The Christians which we used to help and deliver aid to, at great risk in the 90s, after 2003, we saw their communities shattered. The kidnapping, the killing, the sheer brutality meted out against them. One story we carried, people didn't believe it, of the baking of a body in an oven of a child. That was the extent of the brutality. And so the Iraqi Christian community that numbered one and a half million suddenly found themselves ethnically cleansed, religiously cleansed from their own country in less than five years. They lost everything. Now I was in Basra as a British military advisor back in 2007. I walked around, body armor, went around with armored vehicles. The Christians there had lost everything and we didn't protect them. I was the handover of Dikar. They had three Christian families left in the whole area. Amber province, no Christians left. They were all removed. Many were killed. And they fled to the north. And when they got to the north, like Mosul, they found themselves bombed. And so they fled to Syria. And the Syrian government took them in. You don't hear that, by the way, on television. You don't hear that Assad was the one who embraced all the Christians. I was with the Syrian ambassador two, three years ago. And I said to him, look, why have you, out of all the Middle Eastern nations, taken in the Christians and cared for them? He said this, he said, we respect the Christians. We know that they're good people, and we will look after them. That's the man everybody is calling evil and bad. See, what the world is not telling you, and the British and American governments, and the media, is exactly what is going on. I'm hoping to write a, a brief fairly soon on this. It'll probably get me into trouble. 
But it's this, that the key architect of the Arab Spring, or the Islamist uprising, is Saudi Arabia and Qatar. So if you take Libya, it was Qatar where the Libyan opposition leadership found themselves. It was Qatar that provided the arms and the money and even provided ground troops, special forces. Who shaped Egypt, Al Jazeera, and social media? Who owns Al Jazeera, Qatar? If you take Syria, who wants now the invasion of foreign forces into Syria? It is Qatar. Who provided the money last March 2011 to the Sunni militants within Syria? It was Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And so you've got two countries that actually have seized the initiative to reshape the Middle East to ensure that fundamentalist Wahhabi Islam defines those countries. And guess what? Guess who's backing them? The U.S. Because the U.S. has its main base, CENCOM, in Qatar. We are complicit in a great evil. Oh yes, Syria is a dictatorship. Been going there for 20 years. But it's been changing. It's still a dictatorship. You do have degrees of freedom. I'll tell you a story. Three years ago, the Barnabas Fund built an evangelical church in Damascus. It now has about 600 members. The government allowed it to be built. They provide free electricity and free heating to the church. They allow us freely to operate. No other Arab country allows that. We do all our food distribution with the government knowing. I actually have got free visas to go into the country. And the government knows who I am. It's a dictatorship, yes. But now the Islamists have sought now to capture the country. If Syria falls, and the general view is that it probably will fall, it is the Islamists that will gain control. There are two million Christians within Syria today, plus a number of other Iraqi Christians. Where are they going to go? If you take Iraq, when the Christians started to flee, Europe refused to have them. So too did America. A few thousands have, done, have been able now to be accepted within America. Canada's been very good. Australia took a thousand. We destroy their country, then we refuse to take them. So we destroy Syria. Will we take in the Christians? Or will they be the refugees of the future? May I say, many Christians in the Middle East have come to loathe the West. The US, the UK, because we support injustice and unrighteousness. We back our governments who destroy so willingly. I understand military. 
I've been last year in Afghanistan where I was writing NATO's religious engagement strategy. I know what it is to be out of the wire and to be shelled. I've been a part of it. And I chose to become a part of it so I could understand it. But may I say, what of our brothers and sisters? And what of the violence that is here? You look at Homs, and we get reports from Homs regularly, from inside. The media has not told you of 200 plus Christians who have been killed, of Christians who have been kidnapped and tortured, of those who have been hanged and brutally murdered by the rebel forces. Mr. Clinton says nothing about that, nor the UN. Why the silence on the killing of the Christians? You tell me that. Why does the media not say, I can give you evangelical pastors from within homes who have spoken of their families, their church communities, being persecuted, being attacked, being killed. And the world's media and the West remain silent. What is to come? Over the past year, more than 300,000 Egyptian Christians have fled Egypt. The numbers continue to grow. Christians are already fleeing Syria. It's accelerating. There's a sense of hopelessness and despair that there is no future. Rather, they face the fact of being butchered and being killed. And they ask why. And they cannot understand why. But you know, that is only one part of our world today. Because our time is limited, let me just very quickly mention Nigeria. I was recently with Archbishop Ben Kwashi, the Anglican Archbishop of Jos, a very godly Christian evangelical evangelist. We were in Washington. And I introduced him to the chairman of the Religious Liberty Commission of the U.S. government. We sat together, and Ben explained what is happening in the Middle Belt and northern states of Nigeria. We're thinking of over the past couple of years of tens of thousands of Christians killed. Hundreds of churches destroyed. Whole Christians' communities completely wiped out. I'm not thinking of 10 years ago, I'm thinking of what is happening now. Boko Haram issued the statement that Christians had to leave. They did that last month. There are now tens of thousands of Christians in southern Nigeria who are homeless because they have fled. And if you've read the Barnabas Fund press release early this week, did anybody read it? What did it say? That Boko Haram has now issued a new statement that they will wipe out the church completely in the North and Middle Belt. They'll kill every Christian. Government cannot stop them. The U.S. ambassador in Abuja does not believe it has anything to do with religion. His argument is these are poor Muslim boys oppressed by the Nigerian government. 
jealous of the Christians who send their children to school. That's his answer. Right now, the Church of Nigeria, of all branches from the Pentecostals through to the Catholics, is facing one of their greatest tragedies ever. Already, many Christians have left the north. I know Nigeria. I don't know the south. I'm a northerner. I know Kaduna, Jos, Sokoto. I've traveled extensively up in the Middle Belt and Northern States. Up in the north, we've lost. The church cannot sustain any ministry. The question is now, do they pull out of the Middle Belt? If Boko Haram succeeds, they'll be massacred in considerable numbers. What would you do in that situation? I mean, I say, when you think of killing, you're not thinking of being shot. I won't describe to you the sheer brutality of the kind of killing that is taking place. Where is the world's media? Where is it on the BBC or CNN? Is Mrs. Clinton talking about it or the UN? This is reality. This is no myth. This is what is happening right now in the Middle East, places like Nigeria and other places that are emerging like Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia with militant Islam developing and moving into Southeast Asia also. So the prophet has this vision. And in verse 5 to 11, God unfolds this vision of persecution, of violence, of war. But you see, this is not new. Hebrews 12, verses 6 to 17, speaks of God's chastising his people. And we should not count it strange. Very interesting enough, Paul in Acts 13 and verses 40 to 41 uses these words of Habakkuk. And he's speaking to the Jews. Do you know, judgment is a reality. This is what the prophets foretold. So in our day, it may well come. And what will happen to this nation? You see, we can't go through this world like the people whom Jesus described. They have eyes and they do not see. They have ears and they do not hear. They live cocooned in their own bubble. It's, it's as if they live only for themselves. And they cannot see the reality that is there. And to understand Habakkuk, you have to look at verse 1. A prophet with a burden for his persecuted people. And so he cries to God. Where are you God? Why do you not hear? And why do you make me see these things? Why do you not answer? And why do you allow your people to go through such pain and such misery? You know, like Habakkuk, I've thought and wondered, and I have no answer to the problem of suffering. 
But I have this, though, to say. And it is rooted in God's chastising justice and what Paul picks up on in Acts 13. Paul is saying, what happened 600 years ago could happen today. I put it to you. Could it happen here in Bahamas? You may say, no. Let me tell you about Britain and Europe. Our government, who is a conservative government, is bringing in a law, and Mr. Cameron has said this will be the defining element of his prime ministership. You know what it is? He's going to change the Marriage Act. So from now on, when the law is passed, is that gays will be married legitimately. And guess what? He wants the churches to do it. And the churches will have to comply. And if you are a minister of a church, and you do not comply, then you may possibly be imprisoned. And so Christians are now thinking for the first time in England, if the government says, I must marry a gay couple, and I refuse, and they put me to prison, am I willing to go to prison to stand for what is right? That is what actually is facing churches right now in the UK. What have we got in Europe and UK? The rise of secular humanism. All our language, by the way, English language has been changed over the past 20 years by the UN. We say, can't be. Tell me, when you speak of husband and wife, what's the in term for husband and wife? Partner. Do you know why? Because if you get rid of the male-female divide, then man-man is partner, woman-woman is partner. That was brought in by the UN. Inclusive, diversity, all these terms were brought in as anti-Christian terms to move away from a Christian-based ethic. And we bought it. So we use the word partners, diversity, inclusiveness, and a host of other terms, all of which is based upon a secular humanist society. That's what Europe is now. The church is virtually finished. Christianity has been pushed to the margins. We've got a potential economic collapse. We do not know which way to go. And no one says, let's turn to the Bible or to God, because God has now become irrelevant. It is Dawkins and the new atheism which is in control. And Christians are now sitting there thinking, what's going to happen to us? I've just finished a work on martyrdom, and uh, it's coming out for Easter. And in writing the foreword to it, I grappled with the issue of death. And I got to thinking, if martyrdom came to Britain, how many British Christians would apostatize and deny the faith? How many Christians in America would be willing to die for the faith? How many of you would be willing to die for the faith? You say, you are a Christian country, Bahamas. Well, Dr. Steve Lochin told me today that 70% of all births in Bahamas are born out of wedlock. So where's your Christianity? Is it only skin deep? You see, could it happen?
today. This is what Habakkuk is about. And that's why Paul uses it and why I, with justification, can point it to you. So where do we go? And this is my final point. God's commitment to his people, verse 12 onwards. What's this commitment and what is it based on? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. We shall not die. The church will never die. Mr. Tallian, who once spoke of the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church, but the more we die, the more we live. The more we persecute it, the more we grow, the stronger we become. And here, the prophet discovers a truth, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Though the world throws everything against it, she will continue to live until God's purposes for her are fulfilled. Because our God is an eternal, everlasting God who alone holds this world in his hands, who alone is the author and end of history, who alone holds all time and determines the end from the beginning. O rock, he says, O rock, God is my rock and my fortress. On him I rest, and though the violence come, I will not be moved. Though the storms come, I will not be moved. Though the darkness comes, I will not be moved. Though the forces of evil assail me, I will not be moved. Because God is my rock and my strength and my fortress, and he will keep me until his purposes are fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, think hard about yourself and about your country. You have been much blessed, but for how long? For the Middle East, we do not know the future of the church. For the Middle Belt, Northern Nigeria, for Pakistan, for Afghanistan, no one can speak. I do not believe we can speak either for Bahamas. Only that may God be merciful to you and to his people. Thank you. How do you sing after a message like that? And the only thing that came to my mind just now is the second verse of How Great Is Our God. The same thought that Dr. Sugdeo ended on, that he is the God who is from age to age. He is the, the same. He is the one in whom we can trust and put our confidence in in these uncertain times. Alan, I don't know if you have that verse, and age to age he stands. There we go. Let's sing this together. And age to age he stands and 
time is in his hands, beginning and the end, beginning and the end. The Godhead three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Stand together and let's declare it. How great, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. Oh, we'll see how great, how great is our God. Above all God's name. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the solemnity of the message this evening. And yet in the midst of that solemnity, we reflect on how great you are and how merciful we are because of you. We have been the recipient of so much. And Lord, we confess we have been unfaithful, and ungrateful. Now, Lord, we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, will give us no rest until we become what you have purposed for us to become. Lord, we honor you, and we want to do that in every aspect of our lives. Thank you again for your messenger. Thank you for the message. And now, as we leave this place very cognizant of the fact that we can never leave your presence. We ask that you will give us genuine mercies to our various homes. These things we ask, Father, in the name of your Son, and all of God's children said, Amen. Amen.